It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Huge Groove. He's performing in the Chrome Showroom at the Santa Fe Station Hotel this Saturday, December 4th at 8 p.m. For ticket information, go to stationcasinoslive.com. And for everything about Huge Groove, go to hugegroove.com. And you can follow him on Twitter and on Facebook at Huge Groove. And of course, that's not your real name. It's close, but it's not quite. From what I have read and understand, what your mother-in-law gave you the, the changeover name, is that correct? Yes, for the most part. Stephen Eugene Grove is my real name. And Huge was what my mother-in-law shortened, and I've been married 32 years tomorrow, and she's been calling me Huge for 32 <laughs> years. And, and Groove came out of Grove, which is my... Um, traveling through Europe and Latin-speaking countries and that kind of stuff, they would pronounce G-R-O-V-E like Groove. Mr. Groove, here's your hotel room key and that kind of stuff. And so what a funny moniker, huge Groove. And I just thought that you were named after, and this is people for, that are older than us, I have to say huge, but you were named after the Coconut Grove. That's where I, I, th I thought you got your original name from. You know, that's funny because uh, I lived in Miami for about eight years. And uh, that was a nickname down there, Coconut Grove, because that's a very popular place down there. And I kind of had that furry hair like a coconut. So <laughs> well, coconut Grove. They had a similar institution in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel many moons ago. So how would you define your genre? I know that people tend to say it's smooth jazz and other people say it's a mix of various elements, including blues. How would you? I'm going to give it to you. I'm turning the floor over to you. How would you define your music? Um, I, you know, a lot of people don't like the term smooth jazz. I have no problem with it. It's what it is. That's what I do. And, <laughs> and I was a fan of the genre before I started making music in it. And I've never, ever once tried to write a song or record a song that was going to do well on radio for the sake of doing well on radio. This is just what I do. I write stuff that's, that's natural to me. I've done album number 12. I'm working on albums. Unlucky number 13. The, <laughs> Do you have a title for it yet? Maybe that's it. No, unlucky 13. Yeah, unlucky 13. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it'll be, uh, we're going to Vegas. Maybe it'll be uh, <laughs> a, a six on a dice and seven on the other dice. That would be 13. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. You know, I'm still in the early stages of it and compiling songs. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people will write, you know, 20 songs and pick the best 10 for an album and, and, I know pretty early on if the, if the groove isn't working and I'll just trash it right away. So I end up writing 10 songs in order. I write the first song, second song, third song, always in order. Do you like the writing and the recording more than the performing live, or is it all the same to you in the sense of the satisfaction? Um, that's a really good question. Nobody's asked me that before. Uh, I, I like them both. As I've gotten older and more mature and in my, I'm in my 22nd year of, of doing solo projects, you know, I'm really into the production side of things. I've really got heavily into that and 
Uh, I do a lot of production for other people as well, too. And um, much so to the point where I've had to turn down stuff so I can work on my own stuff. But I love the geek stuff. Uh, you know, we're looking at each other right now. You've got all this geek gear behind you. And, uh, I, I'm surrounded by all this geek gear, and I just love it. And um, uh, my latest passion has been uh, uh, mastering albums, analog mastering, not every, not in the computer like a lot of guys do. And um, my, I, I like to say, this is the truth, I tried to buy a Porsche earlier this year, and my wife wouldn't let me do it. So I spent the money on analog mastery gear, <laughs> which turned out to be a good thing. I've gotten really busy at it. I just did the Rick Braun, Peter White, Norman Brown, Larry Carlton, Vincent Ngala. I've gotten like all these guys that are coming to me now to do mastering, and it's been a blast. Well, Rick was on the show a couple of weeks ago, so this works. It's a small world, and he was yeah. at the Santa Fe also. So yeah, it works out. I'm intrigued by the fact that you said, because I envisioned you when you told me about your, your really liking production, that you embraced the digital world, which is now actually getting older, too, because at the time it was a whole new thing. But here yeah. you are embracing the digital world, you're involved in production, and now you're doing analog editing. Are you using a razor blade and tape on a block? No, no, no. To... I've, I've got those. I have an old two-inch Studer machine in my garage. <laughs> uh, I haven't used it in years. And... <laughs> I still have the uh, the uh, uh, rolls of tape in my studio, and every now and then I'll open them up and just to smell them. <laughs> the acetate. The, it smells so good, and I would open them up. Oh, but no, man. I do all of my mixing and writing and everything 100% on the computer. But that final stage of mastering, I have not been happy when it's been done in the computer. And all the mastering places, the great mastering places that I've uh, I've used, we're all analog. And I'm like, there's got to be something to this. And I did a bunch of research on it and um, uh, ha had some help picking some, you know, the right gear. And I filled up a huge rack full of analog gear. And uh, it sounds amazing. I'm, I'm loving it. <laughs> Just a one quick note, and then we'll move on, because I know some people are going, what are the guys talking about? I thought we were talking about music. Yeah, 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 yeah. But one more last point. I took a tour of Capitol Records many years ago, and they indicated to me they were all digital at that point, but they indicated that a lot of the bands that came in like to record what they call warm. So they would record on an analog basis on tape and then convert right. it digitally. And it sounds like right. you're kind of doing the same thing in a way. Yeah, my first few albums were all tape. And then, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, that was kind of the way to go. And as digital got better, I recorded a few albums on tape and transferred it over, which had a sound to it. And then digital got even better. And uh, there was no, you know, no reason to do the tape thing in there. And and for people listening that are really confused by all this, <laughs> mastering mastering is the final stage. Mastering is the thing that uh, when all the mixes are done, the production is done, they give it to a mastering engineer that takes those um, uh, those tapes or recording or or the um, final mixes and makes them all sound the same and gives them nice levels. So when you listen. In your car, it sounds good there. When you listen to little ear pods, it sounds good there. When you listen on your own stereo, it sounds good there. And it has to sound good everywhere. And um, that's the final stage of it. And it can really add a nice shine and brilliance to those uh, to those mixes. And, you know, like I said, it scratches my geek itch and I love doing it. <laughs> Are you more comfortable being in charge of your own career in terms of recording, obviously writing it, but then recording it rather than be dependent on a record? 
company's studio? Would you rather just do it all yourself at this point? Yeah, I've gravitated to, you know, doing everything at home and I'm comfortable here and there's no one on the clock and I can take as much time as I like. And, you know, being in control of, you know, I used to use producers and engineers and all that stuff, you know, early on. And now I do 100% of that. And, you know, to have that kind of control, I guess I'm a control freak, but, you know, it was really difficult to hear something. It's like wine, you know, you try to describe wine. Well, music is the same kind of thing, trying to describe it. And so an engineer is trying to interpret, you know, the verbiage and, and they don't always get it. Now there's nobody in between, you know, it's just me and, and the computer and I can get it exactly like I want. I don't have to describe it to somebody and try to have that translated. So, um, I, I love that control. And, uh, then I got into the mixing, which is another aspect of control. And now I'm into the mastering, which is the final aspect of control. So, you know, if it sucks, there's nobody to blame but me. Now, I'm going to go back to my original question. The one thing I do excel at is knowing when you haven't finished answering the question, which was, and you said it was a good Uh question, did you think the writing, the recording and production and mastering, or the live performance in front of an audience, are they all equally satisfying to you, or is one more than the other? Well, it used to be 100% the live stuff. Even before I was making records, I was, you know, touring with people like Tina Turner and Joe Cocker and, you know, those, those kind of great artists. And that was my whole life was touring. Then I got into, I used to dream about doing my own albums and getting out on the road and doing performances for other people. I could visualize them. I could, you know, I could taste that taste, you know, what it was. And, and now, like I said, I've gravitated more into the uh, production side of it. So it probably leans a little heavier to the production side of of enjoyment. Um, you know, I'm 60 years old now and, uh, you know, flying 200,000 miles a year like I did in 2019 before the pandemic struck last year. I did 200,000 miles that year and the year before that, the year before that in the air. And um, it's fatiguing. So, you know, the old uh, joke that uh, we get paid to travel, not the hour and a half on stage. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. so true. The hour and a half on stage you are enjoying, the travel not so much. So that's, that's free. Yeah. It's the yeah. other, uh, you know, 22 yeah. and a half hours a day. That, <laughs> you know, paid for. But all those airline mile credits that you incurred, it's great. I know. I give them to family and fly everybody everywhere and, um, uh, you know, happy to do it and happy to have them. I think I looked at my account the other day. And I have uh, 900,000 miles on American Airlines. If you get to a million, I think you get a special card. And Yeah, I've already been past that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been way past that. I'm up to the two million miles wow. now. So Excellent. I know. Okay. <laughs> oh, I know, hard to believe, right? But it's... You're, you're, how, how do they say that? You're, you're uh, land rich, so your mileage credit's rich and uh, cash poor. Yeah, Something there like you that. Go. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, I, I every time I see that movie with George Clooney up in the air, it uh, it always reminds me of my quest to get more miles. <laughs> well, when you come you up know, to Las Vegas, and I assume you're flying to Las Vegas to get some additional, I'm driving miles. in. Actually, oh, you I'm are. Okay, driving. I think there's yeah. a deal with the airlines that because you are so high up on that, they'll give you credit even if you drive. Oh, well, I, I'm speculating. Gotta, yeah, look into I'm that. I'm going to look into that, for <laughs> sure, yeah. But when you started up, and I'm going to go way, way back, you started playing piano, I think, in the second grade, and then you turned to the saxophone about age nine. Am I correct on my years, roughly? Right. 
the ripe old age of nine. Okay. So what made you make that? Uh, that's an early age to change direction in terms of instruments. So how did you know that sax was meant for you? Well, I never gave up piano. You know, I stuck with that. But um, uh, there's no piano players in the band, which, you know, the band is a group. And um, my best friend at the time was playing sax. And I thought we could hang out more together if I played the sax too. So that's where the sax came from. <laughs> Interesting. So it was and, not a, an analysis by a nine-year-old of the the potential income raised by a saxophone playing versus piano playing. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's simpler than that. <laughs> I never thought about that. I mean, by the time I got to junior high school, I was, you know, I had some great teachers and uh, I was fully entrenched into music and band. And, uh, you know, I, I thought I was going to be a musician the rest of my life, which meant playing in the school band the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't, when I got into college and about halfway through college and I was studying classical music, and I'm like, there's really not much of an outlook out there for <laughs> classical saxophonists. I better figure this out. And then I started to discover a lot of guys like uh, Junior Walker and David Sanborn and King Curtis and and these guys more in the pop and rock vein, you know, and um, my ear gravitated right to that. So from classical music to um, King Curtis. I'm not sure how that <laughs> went there, but our Junior Walker screaming away. But uh, that's what happened. Then I got into rock and roll and, I, you know, never looked back. You mentioned David Sanborn. was also Marcel, who also had an influence on you. Marcel Mulet. Yes, I was going to say the reason I didn't give his last name is I was going to. I was afraid I would trip on it and say Mule instead of Mulet. Mule. So I let you do it. Yeah. yeah, Marcel Mulet, and um, he was my first. I think saxophone idol. I mean, I was into guys like Stan Getz and and you know that smooth, luscious tone early on. Um, but um, the one that really killed me was Marcel Mulet. And um, he was well into his 90s, and I got an invitation to study with him at the Conservatory of Paris. And it was a little more than I wanted to do at the time. And I was starting to make that transition over into, you know, rock and pop music. And part of the deal is you had to take care of him. And I'm like, I'm not sure I can deal with that. But, um, you know, his recordings live forever. And I would transcribe his recordings and transcribe his vibrato and every little nuance he did. And I was really into that. And it's funny you're talking about that. I did uh, a friend of mine asked for my senior recital tape at 19 years old or 20 years old recording of classical music. And I hadn't listened to it in, you know, 30 years at least. 40 years wow. ago now, I guess. Is it digitized? Yeah, uh, it, it is. It came from a, uh, <laughs> it's on uh, MP3 now or something like that. But um, <laughs> I transferred it a long time ago. But uh, it just, what a, I'm like, where's that guy? Where did he go to? And just, you know, what a complete 180 from, from that classical genre. I, I thought one of the reasons you would have taken the trip to Paris is the additional miles that you would have earned. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So, that, at the time, you know, I didn't care. Put me in the back of the plane, <laughs> in the middle seat. Now, if I'm flying first class, I'm not getting on the plane. So that's that's how jaded I've become. I have a, a new genre I want to suggest to you to see if you like this. Instead of a smooth jazz, it would be smoothie jazz, which would only be played in a juice bar. Would that work? What do you think? New no. concept? No? no? Too narrow? Not feeling, not no? feeling All that. All right. Just that I'd not ask. Not feeling that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, smooth jazz, it really brings up some negative connotations to people. I don't know why the aversion for it, but, um, you know, it really does. I mean, uh, even the movie, 
I don't remember the name of the movie a couple years ago. Uh, Will Ferrell was the star of it. And um, Daddy's Home, I think that's what it was called. And uh, he was a kind of a wimp of a guy and nicest guy you've ever wanted to meet, but he wouldn't stand up to anybody. And he was a wimp of a guy. And uh, he was the programmer for a smooth jazz radio station. <laughs> and I just had to laugh at that. Even in the movie, they had they had to pick out smooth jazz and make fun of it. I'm like, you know, the Rodney Dangerfield of music. We get no respect. Yes, but you get an audience, which is why you're coming in again to Station Casinos. And you're going to be there on, as I mentioned, this Saturday, December 4th at 8 p.m. Santa Fe Station yes. Hotel in the Chrome Showroom, where your friend Rick was just a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked him. Is there any interesting, because you've been here before, so any interesting stories that you have about your time visiting in Las Vegas? Not necessarily partying in Las Vegas. Partying. Partying. Yeah, partying. partying <laughs> yeah, can't even get it out. But uh, I'll leave it to you if you have Well, one. yeah, you know, I've had some interesting stories right down on the Strip. Thank God the uh, Chrome Showroom is uh, not exactly <laughs> on the Strip, so there's less trouble to get into there. But uh, I remember the first time driving up there, and it was a big picture of me on their huge sign out front. I'm like, I've made it! You know, I've made exactly. it. I'm on a big billboard exactly. in Las Vegas. And I got so, I was so happy because they had my name and then the buffet below it. Because if the buffet would have been above my name, I would have been really upset about that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's always an adventure going to Las Vegas. <laughs> I think that's funny, right? It that's is. I could also see shrimp cocktails or <laughs> some other Yeah, thing. yeah. exactly. Yeah, our unlimited buffet and huge drink. I just, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling that. Wait, but, the uh, ultimate insult would have been that you had to perform at the buffet. At the buffet, well, you know, the Chrome Showroom, while they were redecorating years ago, closed the Chrome Showroom and turned that into the buffet. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. I did. They stopped doing shows for a minute and turned it into the buffet. So oh, that's funny. It shows you the importance of the buffet over in the table. People got to eat. <laughs> People got to eat. Would you, when you look at the music scene today, are there are there contemporaries of yours that you put in the same? category because you're you're well known and defined in a certain genre as we talked about are there others in that genre that you are compadres with and that you sometimes will join in performance in other venues in other cities um you know packaging as they call it in the business is is really prominent right now and i, I do a lot of work with peter white you know the guitarist peter white we do a lot of shows together and, um, uh, you know, the majority of my shows since starting in July, after the pandemic lightened up a bit, uh, have been with them. And we have a blast. Just a bunch of knuckleheads fooling around on stage. And um, it's so much fun to do. Um, you know, the, the Chrome Showroom is going to be, you know, just me for uh, an hour and a half. So you guys will have to get sick of looking at me. <laughs> but um, it's nice to team up with other people and, and have those other influences come in. Uh, one of the great things about getting into the production stuff, I've been working with a lot of younger artists coming to name or coming to uh, top of my mind right now, uh, is a new saxophonist, Jasmine Jen. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Mm -hmm. Um, she's out of uh, Florida and, uh, she's, I think she has two or three albums under her belt, but I produced her last album for her that came out the beginning of this year. And uh, she got her first number one at radio off of that album. So it was real thrilling nice. to see someone develop and grow like that and to be a part of that. And 
you know, producing her was was amazing. And and she's one of those uh, true artists because she would stand her ground. If she felt really strongly about something, she wasn't going to let me persuade her. And that's, <laughs> that's the mark of a true artist. And, um, you know, you know what you want. We talked about that earlier, trying to translate through other people. You know what you want. And she knew what she wanted on a lot of stuff. And in the end, she always got it. And uh, to me, that's a true artist. So you couldn't corrupt her with airline miles? I couldn't corrupt her with airline okay. miles, no. I just no. like to return to that theme occasionally just because I'm impressed by all the mileage that you were <laughs> I'm not even close. I'm not even anywhere near that. You mentioned something that I don't think people picked up on, and that is – and this is definitely a value to the performance. And you're going to be there for an hour and a half. There's so many shows now that are doing an hour or they maybe have an opening act and then 45 minutes here, they split the bill, 45 minutes one person, 45 another, whatever it is. An hour and a half is a substantial – stage time thank you for pointing that out i really appreciate that um <laughs> in kind of a in kind of a rough way coming coming out of covid for a year and a half of not playing the saxophone much you know and just practicing and not doing live shows uh first couple of shows i did my chops my mouth was hanging on the ground and i'm not um, laughing at your mouth hanging on the ground it's just a funny concept but i understand what you're saying yeah yeah i mean uh, you know and you hear that from a lot of musicians it's not the same in your studio and in the practice room and all that kind of stuff as hitting the stage and the adrenaline flows. And you say, I'm going to hold back and take, you know, take it easy to save it for the end of the show and never do. In those first couple of minutes, you just blow your brains out. And, and then an hour into the set, you're going, why did I do that? I still have another half hour. To well, go. you wanted to so, establish a template or a predicate for your performance. or you wanted to come out strong initially. So I, I yeah, understand. well, yeah. it's just the adrenaline hits yeah. you, the excitement, the crowd, and <laughs> all that stuff. And you can never hold back. I mean, a lot of times I'll do um, uh, 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 shows that have two shows in a smaller venue, say 200, 250 people, 300 people. And uh, you do one 75-minute show, and they turn the house with a new audience, and you do another one. And um, there's one in particular in Jazz Alley up in uh, uh, Seattle where you actually do six shows across four nights. And by the end of that, believe me, you are drained. It's yeah. a lot of a lot of work. That's getting close to vaudeville, that many yeah, shows. Yeah. Wow. Or the, old days of, somebody? or the old days of Vegas in the Sahara Casbar Lounge, where yeah, Rickles did six shows. shows, or, shows yeah, right. yeah. Oh, yeah. man. If you're teamed up with um, uh, you know, somebody like Peter White, you can kind of share the stage and take the slack over when the other one's feeling tired. That's one thing. But, you know, when it's all you and 100% you, and uh, I don't have a lot of features of other guys in the band, I should. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they, they have their moments, but not that many, eight, 16 bars every now and then, enough to turn around and dry the brow off and get a <laughs> sip of water. But uh, it's, yeah, it's it's a long show. Do, do you find that you design the show differently each time? depending on the venue or the market or the audience? Or is it a certain approach you take that is consistent so you know what you're going to play in the beginning, in the middle, at the end? You know what? It's like writing an album for me. I know the first song, what I'm going to write, and I just you know write them all in order. And I do sets sort of like that too. But um, as you, you, know, you were asking, it's true. I will do a different set depending on what the venue is, what the audience is. You know, if it's a place I do all of the time, 
I'll uh, uh, inject more new music into it. Uh, so it's not the same old show. If it's a place I do do very often, it's like play the hits, you know, play the stuff that's most recognizable. You know, the, the I, I do a lot of smooth jazz cruises. That's a different audience. You have people coming from all over the world to hear those and, you know, hear the shows there and, and I'll pick different songs. And um, yeah, so I, I, I am conscious of that. You mentioned the jazz cruises and I think I saw an interview you did on one of the jazz cruises. It's a different vibe than a typical showroom in a hotel or in a theater. Because I guess it's on a ship and because the same people are there for the whole journey, which is the name of a rock band, but that's a whole other world. (laughs) (laughs) And they're coming into Las Vegas for a residency. You have to almost approach it differently on a jazz cruise. You have, I think, more dedicated, if that's the term, dedicated fans that are going on this jazz cruise than would come to see you in a theater or a showroom. I mean, yeah, right? the most the most hardcore fans, and they're plopping down big dollars to go out and uh, you know and, and to hang with their friends, other fans, uh, with the artists. It's an amazing experience, and I've been doing them for eighteen years now, seventeen, eighteen wow. years, and uh, it's always the highlight of the year for for me to be able to do one and interact with people like that. You know, talking about writing different sets. You know, I pay attention, and uh, the way that they do it is, is you have half the ship sees the first show, half the ship will see the second show. Well, while people are seeing the first show, the uh, other half are eating dinner, and then it swaps around, and you see like people that have eaten dinner, and they come into that second show, and they're like, "Oh, I ate too much of dinner." So. You know, you kind of have to have a different attitude when you're playing to people like that. Here's the poster on the ship. Huge groove, and below that, buffet. <laughs> buffet. Buffet. As long as you get the buffet. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Before I let you go, I know, and I asked the same question before of others. You obviously had people you looked to as mentors or at least influences. Are you at the point where you are influencing people and people come to you and say, I would really like to learn from you? And are you thinking about mentoring people? You mentioned are that. You saying I, are you saying I'm getting old? Not at all. To pass no, no, it, no. To pass it down? No, not at all. In fact, my, my you attitude is you're only young once, but with humor, you can be, I forgot the line. Let me pick it up again. <laughs> you're only young once, but with humor, you can be... Oh, I just spaced it. I'm sorry. Well, will pick it up. Go ahead and answer uh, my question. That's all right. You'll think of it as yeah. we start talking. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny you say that because I do. Um, I do get a lot of people that will call up and ask for advice in certain situations and business situations of music and creative situations of music. And, um, you know, they'll call me up and, and ask me for advice. And it's funny. I was out with my the whole family we actually have everybody home right now for thanksgiving which is fantastic and uh we were out to dinner the other night and i gave a little advice to my 30 year old son and uh he wasn't having any of it <laughs> he, d- he didn't want to hear it. he's like if i wanted your opinion i'd ask you for it and uh what the way of the you world you should be giving me your advice and i'm like well if somebody 30 years my senior gave me advice I would be listening to it and digesting it and seeing what's in there. So, <laughs> so you know, I can I can uh, help people out in the genre, but not in my family. You know, that's uh, they don't want to hear from that. I just thought of it. You're only young once, but with humor, you can be immature forever. 
Ah, that's that's a total musician thing. And there you I go. I become a musician because I never <laughs> wanted to go up. We're suspended in a state of adolescence forever. Last question, I'll let you go. Future of jazz, from your point of view. Future of the jazz that you play. Future of smooth jazz. Exactly. Say. I was going to use that word, but we've been using it so much, I didn't want to overuse it. I don't know, because uh, I see people that try, you know, smooth jazz kind of came out of making instrumentals of uh, early pop music, 60s, 70s, 80s, and, you know, even covering a lot of those songs and doing instrumental versions of them. And I see people now that will try to cover a pop song and don't have much success at it, because pop music isn't as song-oriented as some of those great songs from the uh, 70s. And so there's not as much song to grab into. So there's not much to it. Now, on the flip side of that radio, doesn't play many covers songs anymore. It's it's pretty much all original stuff. And I hear the basis in uh, writing in 70s and 60s, 70s, 80s music, you know, soul music, R&B music. And I hear the writing in that. And I think that's what's going to continue. You're going to have artists that come through that will continue to write new and fresh ideas. And they're going to grab little elements of, of being young and they're going to grab the little elements of pop music and interject that into, I think, where the roots of smooth jazz came from, which is, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. That's kind of a, a roundabout way of kind of describing where it's coming from. But, you know, as, as artists, musicians, whatever, we're just a culmination of everything we've listened to our entire lives. And, uh, you know, from we talked earlier on Marcel Mulet, the classical saxophonist to King Curtis and everything in between, you know, that I've listened to and every day in pop music and Journey, you know, that's doing the residence. And uh, everything has influenced me. And you don't know where that influence is going to come in into your writing. And uh, I listen to a lot of contemporary gospel music. That influences what I do. And so each artist is, is unique in what they had listened to growing up. And certainly the younger people coming into this listen to different music growing up. So that that's, you know, affecting... Um, uh, how they write and how they perform. So I think that's where the genre is going to go. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Huge Groove. He's performing at the Santa Fe Station Hotel this Saturday, December 4th at 8 p.m. For ticket information, go to stationcasinoslive.com. And for everything about Huge Groove, go to hugegroove.com. And you can follow him on Twitter and on Facebook at Huge Groove. And Huge, thanks for being on the show. No problem. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and I can't wait to get to Vegas. Always one of the highlights of my year. Excellent. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. We have a